Lord's Day 6. Uh, by the way, most preachers will tell you that uh, Lord's Days 5 and 6 are among the most challenging Lord's Days of the Catechism. So maybe that's why they get an old guy like me to preach on them, who's done it before, and spare a rookie like Tim so he doesn't have to worry about it right away. So we turn to Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sin should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who is himself a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who is at the same time true God and a true and righteous man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us or for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption? From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets, foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he had it filled through his only son thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, it's saying from him 28, the stanzas 3, 4, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our first service this afternoon, we did a bit of a world tour by mentioning Newfoundland and Florida and the Ukraine. Well, it seems this Sunday we're continuing our tour because the question I have before you, have you ever been there? Have you ever gazed at its beauty and grandeur? Have you been stunned by its size and depth? Have you become away impressed beyond words? If you ask what I'm referring to, I'm referring to the Grand Canyon in the northern part of Arizona. It's that beautiful hole in the ground And by the way, the Scotchmans would say that when asked how did the Grand Canyon came to be, it's very simple. It's because a Scotchman lost a nickel. And now imagine, imagine just trying to build a bridge across the Grand Canyon. I'm sure it can be done probably these days, but imagine the cost, imagine the extent, and imagine how it would ruin that beautiful natural place to put in some kind of an artificial bridge with huge spans, and you know it. It just wouldn't be very feasible. Well, beloved, in a way, you can say these particular Lord's Days of the Catechism are a bit like that, Lord's Days 5 and 6, because what they do is they describe this huge chasm between God and man, this, this valley or this pit that separates the Almighty from God, and in which the sides are really steep, and the way down is so far you can hardly see the bottom, Because this particular chasm, this canyon, is far more than any Grand Canyon on a greater scale and a deeper depth. A thing unimaginable almost. So the distance is so great you can hardly see across it. And then you you stand on one side of this particular chasm and you ask, how are we going to get across it? 
How do I get over, not to the other side of the canyon, but how do I get over it to God and to God's side? And deep down, you know, the answer is, it's not possible, can't be done. This really is a, a hole too deep and a bridge too far. But you know, just at the point where everything seems impossible as the catechism kind of summarizes what Scripture teaches, God intervenes. And we read about that, or we read about that last time in Lord's Day 5. Filled with desperation and defeat, man in question 15, it's interesting. Uh, the question 15 of the previous says, what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? Actually, the original is a bit clear and a bit more emphatic and a bit more exasperated. Because it's asking, what kind of mediator and deliverer then must we seek? We tried this, we tried animals, we tried that. Nothing has worked. So what in the world do you want us to do? What kind of mediator then must we seek? You see, in answer 15, if you psychologize the catechism a bit, it's almost as if the writers are about to throw in the towel. And you know, they're filled with desperation. And all of this appears to be going nowhere. There's no way to cross the chasm, to get across the canyon, to get over this hole beyond compare. There's no bridge. Because this bridge has to satisfy the justice of God, make payment to God, sustain the wrath of God. This bridge is just too far. But then the Catechism summarizing the Scriptures says, no, it isn't. Because there is a bridge. And the bridge over this troubled water or chasm is none other than Jesus Christ. He's the way back to God, back to favor, back to fellowship, and back to glory. And so I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the theme, our God-given mediator. We're going to first of all look at the uniqueness of his natures, then we'll look at the glory of his person, and finally the fullness of his revelation. Oh, beloved, if you tune in a little to the catechism and how it develops itself here, you, you come across the impression that the catechism is a bit of a slow and careful builder. And here in Lord's Day 6, you can see it again. You know, having given us now the basic requirements of the bridge, as you find it in answer 15, it goes on to identify him right away. Or maybe it doesn't. Rather, it goes on to identify his natures, his two natures. And you might say, well, why, why are we suddenly talking about the two natures of Christ? Isn't this uh, deep theology? Isn't this unnecessary theology? Well, beloved, I would say to you that this, in spite of whether you appreciate it or not, is really, really important stuff. There are some things in the Christian faith that are not crystal clear, and about which you and I can have a difference of opinion. However, there are some things that are so essential, so basic, and so fundamental that we need to get them right. 
And that concerns and relates to the two natures of Christ as well. You know, in that connection, we have a number of ecumenical creeds. We have three, could be more, but we have three. One of them is called the Athanasian Creed. It's, of course, named after the church father Athanasius. And and in it, you find a description of two points of Christian doctrine. There is the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the two natures of Christ. And in turn, these two teachings are the most fundamental teachings of the Christian faith. Look at how the Athanasian Creed begins. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all things, hold to the Catholic faith. And then look at how it ends. This is the Catholic faith. Unless a man believes it faithfully and steadfastly, he cannot be saved. You see, to be saved, you need to hold to the Catholic faith. And what is the heart and the substance of this Catholic faith? It is the fact that our God is triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is the fact that Jesus Christ is both God and man. So this is of great relevance and importance. Little wonder that the catechism here spends some extra time on this in Lord's Days 5 and 6, which are rather long and developed. You know, it's, it wants to make sure you get this right. You understand this. You need to grasp it. Because this is important. Yes, and then to help us get it right, there is question and answer 16. It begins, as you can see, with our mediator's humanity. Why must he be a true and righteous man? And you'll notice in response, two reasons are given. The first has to do with the larger issue of justice and the smaller issue of fairness. We met that back in Lord's Day 5, answer 14, in the words, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. He's not going to beat your dog to death for the sin that you have done, in other words. Quite simply, man has sinned. Man needs to pay. But then notice two qualifications. The first, he has to be a true man. That means not a lookalike, not an imposter, not a a ghost-like figure or some kind of science fiction personality. He has to be one of us. He has to share completely in our flesh and blood. Has to be the same, the very same human nature that has sinned. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, as many die due to the trespass of one man, so many will live according to the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. Hence, you see, God's justice demands that our mediator, our bridge, be a true, real, genuine human, a man. 
But while true humanity is the first qualification, there is a second qualification, and it has to do with righteous humanity. Our mediator also has to be a right man, you might say. Well, simply, he cannot be a sinner. So on the one hand, he's, he's like us, exactly like us, but on the other hand, he's not like us. A sinner is disqualified. He cannot be a sinner. A sinner has enough problems dealing with his own sins, let alone taking on the sins of others. A sinner cannot even pay for others. As the Apostle Paul puts it, it has to be the righteous for the unrighteous. And you know, here, here once again, we enter into the realm of the impossible, the humanly impossible. Where in the world can you find a truly, truly righteous man? You know, all kinds of people pretend they are, and other people say they are. Every age presents us with its list of saints and other great people, and they hold them out to us as Savior-like figures. Maybe Mother Teresa, maybe Nelson Mandela, you name it. But you know, the fact of the matter is that none of them are truly righteous. They all have shortcomings. They all have inadequacies. They all have warts. As far as we are concerned, the answer about he must be a righteous man is purely theoretical. It's an exercise, actually, in wishful thinking. It's a pipe dream. There is no one who is any longer truly righteous. Doesn't Scripture say all have sinned, all have transgressed the will of God? That's the situation with us. But that's not, thankfully, the situation with God. But still, if the mediator we're talking about has to be a true and righteous man, he also has to be something else. He has to be true God as well. Uh, things are getting even more difficult, more complex, you see, as the catechism goes on. You know, our human nature cannot save. It's far too limited, far too human, far too weak. The, the power of the divine nature is needed to support our human nature. And only then can this mediator proceed to redeem us. Yes, and that divine work, human work of redemption centers on actually those three verbs that you find in answer 17 of the catechism, bear, to obtain, and to restore. Our nature, our mediator, has to be God because only God can bear the burden of God's wrath against sin. We don't like to talk about that, right? God's wrath, most unpleasant, unpopular subject. And in that connection, we have to admit that we so often underestimate the nature of our, our sins, 
You know, all of us are good at trivializing our sins, or we say, well, everybody else is doing it anyway, so what's the big deal? Or, or we say they're just little mistakes, human flaws, minor hiccups. And then we proceed to blame others for the mess in our lives, and we specialize in excuses. You know, a marriage breaks down, and the husband points the finger at the wife. She made me do it. That's been going on since Adam and Eve, by the way. And, and she paints, points the finger at her husband, and, and he made me do it. We're always blame-shifting. And as a result of all of this that's going on, we have managed somehow to come to the point in our lives where we think that, well, maybe sin isn't such a big deal after all. It does not register enough with us as it does, however, with God. You know, our God says, we may minimize sin, but He does not. Again, Scripture says our God is a father, a refuge, a rock of salvation. But you know, Scripture also says He's He's a devouring fire. And, And doesn't it speak about His indignation and For example, in Nahum chapter 1, and the heat of his anger. And doesn't it say that he marks iniquity? He doesn't gloss over it or forget it. He marks it. You know, to underestimate and to minimize the holiness of our God is just about the worst mistake you can make in this life. And yet we do it all the time. And so, Scripture says we need a mediator. A mediator who somehow can bear this unbearable wrath of God for us. Someone who can take the heat. Someone who can do what we can never do ourselves. Somebody to do the really dirty work for us. But you know, we also need somebody who can do more because we not only want someone who can take the heat, we also want someone who can make some kind of headway or progress for us, right? If that mediator, if all he can do is bear God's wrath, that's not quite good enough. We need more. We need to be able to obtain and have something restored to us. What do we need to obtain? What do we need to have restored? The Catechism summarizing Scripture says two things. Two important things we need back. Righteousness and life. You know, once upon a time, and this is not a fairy tale, but once upon a time, you and I, in terms of our ancestry, we were righteous. We were morally upright. We were pure in all of our affections. We were holy in all of our deeds. We were just in all of our ways. And once upon a time, again, this is not a fairy tale, we had life. We have this glorious, intimate life with God. Perfect harmony. 
true peace. A life that had the potential to go on and on and on. Eternal life. But we lost it all. We forfeited it. We gambled it away. And now we want them back. We want back our righteousness and we want back our life. And beloved, there is only one person who can do that. And that's this special mediator that God alone provides who is both God and man. He alone can do what we can't do. He can bear. He can obtain. He can restore for us. He is the solution to our most fundamental and dreadful human predicament. That's the answer of the gospel. Christ Jesus is the perfect and only remedy. But you'll notice that up until now, at least if you look at the catechism, it's theorizing, it's speculating, it's saying, you know, if we had to, to draw out what this mediator would look like, this is what he would look like. But now, notice it goes from speculation to identification. Because God not only draws out what he has to be like, he also shows us who he is. And who is he? Who is that mediator? Who is at the same time true God and a true and righteous man? And the answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our sanctification, and righteousness, and redemption. In a way, the first part of that answer, you might say, is enough. There, The Catechism identifies our, our Savior and our Mediator at last, and, and it shows us that He's none other than the second person of the triune God. And it says He's the Lord. That means He's the owner, the sovereign, the ruler of all things. And he's Jesus, the one who has come to save his people from their sins. And he is the Christ, the ultimate office bearer and functionary. The greatest prophet, priest, and king. But you know, the catechism, echoing scripture again, as it does so often, adds one more thing. And you shouldn't miss it. He's called our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that one word, our, makes all the difference in the world. Because it's saying it's not enough to identify this mediator. It's not enough to name him. It's not sufficient for you to know he's out there somewhere. I'm saying you, Christian, you need to claim him through faith 
you should be able to confess this most miraculous mediator and deliverer is, is mine. Mine. He belongs to me. And to all those who love him, he is ours. We need to lay claim, in other words, to the most miraculous solution that God provides. But do we do that? Are you doing that today? Or do you only speak abstractly and impersonally about Jesus the Christ? Do you ever speak in personal pronouns? He is my Jesus, my Christ, my Savior, my Lord. Beloved, this is God's greatest gift. And you need to claim him. You need to claim this most precious gift of God and make him your own in your heart, in your life. And indeed, that's what the Apostle Paul did. Notice the personal pronouns in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Paul is saying, in other words, he is my all in all. He's everything I need. He has all the wisdom. He has all the righteousness. He has all the holiness. He does all the redeeming. I don't need anything else. I don't have to do anything. But name him and claim him and make him my own. All that we lack, this mediator provides. All that we need, he supplies. All that we long for, he gives us. Truly, in Christ we have a most incomprehensible, unimaginable treasure. You know, at times... When we think about Christ, we're maybe like those exiles in, in Psalm 126. There's a certain line in that psalm, and it says, We were like men who dreamed. Well, when you hear God's answer to our human predicament, it's like we're people who are, are dreaming. How can it be so good? How can it be so great? So fantastic. How do we know? How do we really know that's true? Well, you know, you and I, we have a whole book. A book to refer back to, to dig in, to explore. For what's the Bible? The Bible really is the book of Jesus Christ. Answer 19 calls it the Holy Gospel. You can say, popularly said, the, the really good news. Now, why is it gospel? 
It's gospel because it's all about Jesus. And I have to say that sometimes we overlook that. You know, we, we have in this life, we have this disturbing tendency to compartmentalize, to, to fracture, to divide. For example, we love to play the Old Testament over against the New Testament, law over against gospel, Moses over against Jesus, the shadows over against the fulfillment. But that's not the way to treat and approach the gospel. Because actually, beloved, it's one long story. It's a unity. It's an unfolding revelation. One long redemptive drama, if you will. And you see that. The curtain opens on creation and paradise. The scene shifts to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for a while it deals with the nation of Israel and all of their ups and downs and mostly downs. And then too there are all those many sacrifices, all that shedding of blood. And, and we Westerners, we don't really clue into all of that. But you know how distasteful and how disgusting that so often was? The streets of Jerusalem and the temple running over with blood from thousands and thousands of animals who were sacrificed. And there are those ceremonies. Some are easy to understand, others we haven't got a clue, even today. And there's the law. Many believers say it's gone, it's passé. It would seem that Psalm 119 is no longer in their Bibles. But you know, it's not really passé, not really. If you relate paradise, patriarchs, and prophets, if you connect sacrifice and ceremony, if you link it all to Christ, then the mystery vanishes. For he's the one who fulfills all the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the law. He does it. Who completes it all? He does. Who perfects it all? He does. Why? Jesus even made that point in speaking to the Jewish leaders of his day. In John 5, he declares to them that his testimony carries more weight than the testimony of John the Baptist. And he even declares that God the Father himself has testified about him. And of course, the Jewish leaders see red and they're about to have a heart attack. But our Lord doesn't care. He plunges on. And he confronts them by saying, you, you know, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Now, you may wonder what's going on here. Well, he's referring to the fact that the Jews of his day were real students of the Old Testament Scripture. They would memorize large portions of the Old Testament and give awards for students who really did a good job at this. They would analyze every book, every chapter, every verse. They would count every word. They could tell you what word was in the center of the Old Testament, what word was in the center of every Bible book. 
They analyzed it as if they were human computers. Inside and out. And why did they do that? Because they thought that that's how you earn divine brownie points. The more you know, the more spiritual you are. The more you know, the more divine dividends it pays you. So you read the Word, you memorize the Word, you discuss the Word, you spend time in the Word, and that activity will get you saved. But, and here's the shocking thing, all of this holy effort, Jesus says, is fruitless, is useless, if it doesn't end up pointing to me. You need to hear Christ in the Scriptures. Our Lord says to them in John 5.40, These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. All that is revealed in the Old Testament leads to Christ. And Christ, in turn, is the one who gives life. In Him, and Him alone, is the good news. But the Jewish leaders didn't see it. But I hope you do. This is October. It's the start of Bible study season again. And it's great. I hope that many of you are studying the Bible individually, corporately, together. I hope you're really busy with it. But there's a warning. And the warning is this. Make sure when you study the Scriptures that you connect it all to Christ. Because if you don't, it's a waste of your time and of your effort. That's what Christ is saying. If you don't see me in the Scriptures, if you don't meet me in the Gospels, you won't receive life in the end. So, beloved, by all means, get into the Word. But make sure that you get into that Word that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, our glorious Mediator, because He's worthy of all your time and attention. A true and righteous man, true God, two natures, one person, and none of us could have dreamed of that one. But that's gift, God's gift, to you today and every day. That you may have and you may claim and you may find life in this priceless, precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.